0: I will warn anybody that starts watching this content of mine or anybody else's. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like, unfortunately, once you learn about, like, Strodes and why they're bad from Strong Towns or from my videos about Strong Towns, you're going to go out to the near you and you're going to be like, this is garbage. Like I used to just drive on this and, you know, tune out and listen to the radio or something. And now I'm going to look at this and think, this is horrible. We need to do something about this. (laughs)
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns initiative, and I'm truly honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, July 9th, 2021, and in this week's episode, I'm super excited to present this conversation I recently had with Jason Slaughter, the creative genius behind the phenomenal YouTube channel, Not Just Bikes, that has exploded onto the scene in the last two years. Now, if you could choose to live anywhere in the world, anywhere at all, where would that be? Well, that was the choice that Jason, his wife, and their young Canadian family were pondering a couple years ago. They ended up choosing to live in Amsterdam. And very soon after he launched the Not Just Bikes YouTube channel as a way of explaining why they made this choice. Surprise! Apparently a lot of people, and when I say a lot, we're talking like 200,000 subscribers with millions of views. So yes, a lot of people seem to be quite interested in the various topics from the mundane to the fascinating that Jason presents, and we'll dive into that content and what he thinks is going on. But before we roll into those discussions, please allow me a moment to mention that this episode is once again being brought to you by The generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And with nearly $200 in donations since last week's episode, I just wanted to say I am so incredibly grateful. Now, if you too would like to pitch in and help promote this movement, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and simply navigate to the donation page. However, if making a donation is just not an option right now, no worries. I completely understand, and I have good news. You can still help me out in a very big way by helping me spread the word about the Active Towns Initiative and this podcast. The bigger the tent, the better. Thank you all so very much for tuning in, and for whatever support you can send my way as I strive to grow this movement to create a culture of activity. And as always, one final reminder before we get started— If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform, as this helps to connect others to this content. Thanks. Okay, enough bantering about here. Let's get this conversation about Not Just Bikes with Jason Slaughter rolling. Jason, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast.
0: Thanks. Hey,
1: uh, you know, Hey, first off, thank you so very much. I know it's very late <laughs> for you. <laughs> at totally least, time. you know, you're, you're, it's late for you in the evening. It's like <laughs> after, uh, nine o'clock at night, I believe. And, uh, usually I'm, uh, I'm retiring and going to bed. Are, are you a night owl? Do
0: you uh, have- uh, yes, that's an understatement. Uh, I actually have a circadian rhythm disorder, so I'll be up very late. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, that that probably
1: answers a, a, another question as to how on earth do you get this stuff done? Now I know yeah. you, you. No, no, no. I started.
0: I started after the kids go to bed and I'll, uh, I'll finish each night at like 4 a.m. or something like that.
1: <laughs> well, hey, let's let's kick this off by just a quick introduction. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself.
0: Uh, Sure. I'm a Canadian who now lives in the Netherlands, and I run a YouTube channel called Not Just Bikes that has become unexpectedly popular. Let's put it that way. Um, So that's the quick intro. I can give a very long story, but, you know, that's up to you.
1: No, that's a a great intro. So, uh, and and I think we've established that a lot of the stuff you're doing at night, uh, do you have a daytime job too, or...?
0: Um, I did, but I actually was, uh, uh, taking a career break to be a stay at home dad. And, um, and then Corona hit, and all the contracts that I was doing dried up. And, uh, yeah. So now I guess I'm a YouTuber. You are a
1: (laughs) YouTube star. (laughs) That's great. So let's go, let's go back to the origins of getting this started, uh, because it Mm -hmm. hasn't been that long.
0: No, it's been less than two years. It's been about a year and a half.
1: So uh, let's go to the origin story. Why, why
0: start a a youtube channel i think it started on twitter
1: first right the the not just bikes
0: uh yeah in a way i mean it's i mean it's a very very long story but i'll try to condense it um and i don't need to go in well i may want to talk about some of the history of what led up to all this but the short of it is that um oh how do i start short you know the the thing is my wife and i have lived all over the world We lived in the UK. We lived in Taiwan. We lived in uh, Belgium. I've lived in the US as as well. Um, And we've traveled a lot. My wife has been to 60 countries. I've been to 59. I used to travel a a lot for business to say the least. And uh, this is all relevant. Trust me. Yeah. (laughs) And I traveled more than anybody should ever travel. Like there was about a five-year period where I wasn't in the same time zone for more than about three weeks. So uh, I used to see how different places were and how, how people lived in different places. And I did a lot of business travel. So I was, I wasn't going to touristy places. I was going to the places where people actually lived and worked. And so I had this experience in all these different places around the world. And I started getting interested into like, why these places were different. Um, and, and like why is it that, you know, I, I really enjoyed going to Seoul in South Korea, or I loved going to Taipei in Taiwan um, and I loved living there but then I would go to say like, uh, Dallas or Phoenix or Houston. And, uh, and I couldn't wait to get out anyway. That's how I sort of got started into urban planning. But what happened with us eventually is we had, uh, we had some kids, we had our first child in the UK, our second in Belgium, and we decided, you know what? I think it's time maybe to stop gallivanting around the world. And we moved back to Canada. And, uh, that was interesting because reverse culture shock is actually a thing. Like it really, really is. And, uh, and so we, we went back to Toronto. And after about a year, I was like, "I'm done with this. I can't live here, man." It was it was a lot of different things, but uh, with respect to the urban planning type stuff, it was a bit of a shock to going be going from all of these walkable places that we lived back to a a relatively car dependent society. And Toronto's better than most for what it's worth. Then it was it was just too much. But then my wife said, "Look, you know, if we're moving." we're not moving again, like this has got to be it, right? So you have to, you have to be done. So we set ourselves on a mission to decide like, where is the best place for us in the world to live? And we did a lot of research. We looked back to the places that we've enjoyed traveling to, the places that I've been to on business, the places we've lived, of course, and uh, we shortlisted them. When then, you know, we even visited some of these places, we would stay in an Airbnb for two weeks and pretended that we lived there. And eventually, you know, long story short, we ended up in Amsterdam. And that's ultimately where the channel comes from, because all of that research about why we thought the Netherlands was the best country for us. Really, I wanted to share that with other people. So I was sharing that on Twitter for a while. But uh Really, like you know, as as we briefly talked about before the show, you really need to show people things uh, in order for them to get it. Because you can you can talk about it all you want, but yeah, ha- a lot of this stuff, like I didn't appreciate it until I experienced it for myself. Until I like went there for myself and looked around and was like, "Wow, look at this! Look at this! Is the way people live? This is crazy! I can't I can't believe this is a thing." So I wanted to show that to people, and Twitter was very limiting in the amount of video time that you can have—hundred forty seconds. And and so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll start a YouTube channel. But the the intention of the channel was only to explain the question that we were getting all the time. People would say, why would you move from Canada to the Netherlands? Like, Canada's a great country. Especially, you know, we'd have American friends that would ask us that. Because, you know, every time something goes wrong in American politics, the Google searches for how to move to Canada just skyrocket, right? So yes, <laughs> Canada <laughs> has this sort of, like, aura of, like, this is the promised land. This is where there, nothing ever goes wrong. This is where we move <laughs> things go bad and you left it voluntarily and canadian people would ask like well go away you know i know you lived all over the place but why why are you moving there and dutch people here would ask us well why why would you leave so the whole point of the channel was to explain why we moved from canada to the netherlands and it was only supposed to be you know 10 or 12 videos there were a bunch of things that i specifically wanted to talk about you know independence for children and the the safe streets and you know there, there's a variety well it's basically the first 10 or 12 videos on my channel and that was the intention and that was it and you know as I said in the first video uh, a lot of people assume when they think about the Netherlands or they think about Amsterdam they just think about the bicycles and that's what Amsterdam is famous for right is the bicycles but it's so much more than that and when you learn about the history of Amsterdam it wasn't they weren't trying to build a cycling city they were just trying to make their streets safer and the cycling came out of it and so that's where the name of the channel comes from because as I said at the end of the first video, there's a lot of good reasons why Dutch cities are so great, and it's not just bikes. So, I mean, that's that's the story. It was really supposed to be the explanation about why why we moved here, uh, and and it has become quite a bit more than that, kind of unexpectedly.
1: Right. So, uh, you mentioned uh, Toronto in in that area. Were you in Toronto proper or just outside of Toronto?
0: Yes. Now we were. We actually um, managed to. Uh, moved to a uh, a place called Riverdale which I actually featured in a video a couple of weeks ago about suburbs that don't suck oh right yeah about the way the that um North American cities used to build suburbs a hundred years ago and it's so funny because I'm still getting comments from people saying Riverdale's not a suburb suburbs are these places with you know with with nothing but houses and the and that you don't mix in that you can't have like like uh mixed in um uh, commercial districts and suburbs. That's not what a suburb is, buddy. And I'm like, no, you, you're really totally missing the point. That's literally what a suburb was until about 70 years ago. Suburbs were like their own contained little town that were walkable. Well, they pre- they they actually technically predate
1: the automobile.
0: Yes, of course. Yeah. Suburbs have been around as long as cities have been around. Um, I mean, they're even, um, they're even Roman suburbs. Um, so, and certainly the, the earliest modern suburbs were connected by train to London, England. Um, so certainly, um, a, a suburb and, and the same thing happened in the U.S. I mean, most of the cities in the, in the U S that other than right on the East coast were built around, um, well, by railroad uh, companies around, uh, around a train station and they were their own towns and, you know, you'd take the train to where you were going. And once you were there, you'd walk to where you wanted to go. So your story
1: is just slightly different than uh, Chris and Melissa's, you know, fellow Canadians that uh, mm-hmm. uh, get that same question from their <laughs> their friends and family uh, yeah. in Canada that say, yeah. well, why would you move to the Netherlands? And of course, for them, it was because they were given that opportunity. They were offered jobs and they had uh, had already written their first book uh, about, you know, Dutch cycling and, and, and the Netherlands. Uh, in, in your case, it sounds like you you had that question in mind of where's the best place for us to go, and it sounds like yeah. the globe was your option. You you basically said where would we like to go, and you probably had some criteria. Um, I'm thinking the English language, you know, in other words, being in a place where it felt comfortable uh, to to
0: exist, you know, and, and not be you know completely you know feeling like you're uh, that okay. wasn't too much of a consideration for us, okay. to be honest. We were willing to to learn it. We were considering Denmark and okay. and, and Norway and places like that. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, we had the luxury of being able to move just about anywhere because um, I mean, both my wife and I are, are professionals that were fairly far in our career, but also we both had international experience. And so it's still very hard to convince a company across the world or in another country to hire you and 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 you know go through the painful process of getting you residency permits and all that kind of stuff Uh, so i I don't want to trivialize it's difficult even for us but it's easier for us than for most people because of the international experience we already had so you know if if i'm going to them and saying like look you know i've i've lived in taiwan and managed teams there and managed remote teams back in the uk and things like that it's it's, uh, it's a lot easier sell, let's put it that way. But ultimately it was my wife that got the job first. I had interviewed with uh, a few different companies, but just couldn't quite make it come together uh, that, uh, that I was interested in or that they were interested or that the deal worked out properly. So yeah, she was the one that ultimately got the job. Fantastic. Which is why I could work contract and then later uh, and be a stay-at-home dad for a while, which is obviously also a luxury that we have.
1: So let's let's dive into the the channel itself and uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about it. you. You alluded to it a little in in saying that you know it's become a success. How successful has this become?
0: Yeah, um, it's become kind of ridiculously successful. <laughs> um, so I, I just passed one hundred seventy thousand subscribers. Uh, last week I think it was. So let's put that into context you know for for creators
1: how easy is it to you know to hit some of the the key
0: milestones? Yeah so YouTube says that uh, I read all this when I was starting out. YouTube says that the average channel now keep in mind this also includes like some kid that just starts streaming his Minecraft and it's not taking it seriously but the average channel uh, that reaches 1,000 subscribers will do it in 22 months. And I hit 1,000 subscribers in um, about six weeks. And then 100,000 subscribers just just after the, the one-year point. So it's been unusually rapid growth. It's It's certainly not the fastest growing YouTube channel around. I mean, it's not like Mr. Beast or something like that. But it has grown much faster than I expected because when I started, I did basically no market research. I think if I had, I probably wouldn't have started because I would have looked and I said, you know, there's other channels that do other urban planning stuff. And, you know, the, what am I adding to it? I. But so I'm just kind of glad I didn't do any research. But again, it was only supposed to be a little, you know, side project for fun to to explain to people to to pass the videos to. But if I looked at, for instance, Bicycle Dutch, which had, I think, uh, when I started about 30,000 subscribers and, and um, a great channel, by the way, obviously, you know, Bicycle Dutch, um, Mark, um, but he had been doing it for 12 years. So that's kind of what I thought, like, eventually, I'll taper out at about 30,000 subscribers. And, you know, after I've been doing this for a while, if I continue it, you know, that's, that's kind of what I thought. And that's not what happened. So it's interesting to see how it progressed, because, A few months in, so I started in in October, and in in January, the channel got monetized. And then, you know, YouTube makes their money off of ads. So they're not really going to promote a channel unless they can make money off of it. So once you've been monetized, then YouTube's algorithm suddenly cares about you. And they started promoting the channel to uh, people in the Netherlands, which is what they do, because I was physically in the Netherlands, Google knew that, and so they promoted it to people in the Netherlands Um, and I got what I really didn't expect was that Dutch people loved the channel because they didn't know this stuff they didn't know that this stuff was special Uh, they had no idea and that had never occurred to me it should have because you know I never thought about urban planning before uh, before a few years ago so it was why would you ever think of these things so uh, it became very very popular uh, with Dutch people and until very recently until just the last few months uh, the Netherlands was still by far the top uh, demographic for the channel and you know I, I was interviewed on local radio. i I had a a, a two- page spread in the in the Dutch uh, national newspaper and uh, and it was actually kind of crazy how how much Dutch people were interested in the channel. And I think that's really interesting because people don't well, one thing I've learned about this is people know nothing about urban planning. They really don't. And people all have their assumptions about things. They all assume that first of all, things that everyone assumes is that the way it is where they live is where it is everywhere or it's similar. And if it isn't, it's because of some obvious thing, like the culture or the weather or the terrain or something like that. Like, it's always this assumption that, well, that's def- different there because of those conditions they must have. And obviously it's like this here because of the conditions we live in. And I think that's the level of understanding that most people have about city design. And, and they think that goes for anywhere. And I'm sure you've experienced that too with, with Americans who say, you know, we're not Amsterdam or something like that. Yeah, yeah. A- and it's... Uh, it's just, it's funny. It's its really funny to to sort of fall into this, because obviously this wasn't my intention. And then the second big spike that I've had is fairly recently, because after I did that first year, I was sort of done, right? I was done, like, this is the reason why we moved on the Netherlands, this is it. But then I started thinking, okay, well, you know, there's there's people obviously interested in these topics, and I'm interested in these topics, or, or I wouldn't have learned this stuff in the first place. But one of the things that was important to me was learning a lot of these urban planning fundamentals that, you know, like I said, most people don't give this uh, a second thought. And uh, so I thought, OK, so the next year of this channel, I'm uh, sort of season two, if you will, I'm going to make it about urban planning fundamentals. So if you look at the channel, you'll see that each each video, um, you know, it normally tells a story of something that I've done in my life or experienced but it introduces some kind of urban planning concept, you know, whether whether it be the missing middle or something like that, or, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And that's been really interesting as well. But one of the things I really wanted to do was talk about Strong Towns. And, you know, you're familiar with Strong Towns, and I think most of your uh, audience aren't, but if you aren't, geez, it's just, I mean, pause the the podcast and go check out Strong Towns. But anyway, and Strong Towns is all about the financial viability of cities. And that was one of those things that was really eye-opening for me when I saw it because I found that back in 2013 or something like that so I decided I'd make a Strong Towns playlist and boy that has really obviously I was not the only one that that was had their eyes opened by Strong Towns because that has just taken the channel to a whole other level and introducing concepts from Strong Towns such as the Growth Ponzi scheme or the Strode has has really captured people's imaginations and I think it's the same thing that I had it's a you know, I had no idea that the way that roads are designed in the U.S. and Canada is different than it is in other countries. And it it's for specific historical reasons and a, a particular approach to a car-centric approach to design that doesn't have to be that way. And it's really fascinating. And so that this is what I want to, now that I have this platform, I want to introduce people to these concepts so they can learn more about How cities are actually designed and the history around why these places are like this and what things used to be like, where they live and where other people live, and hopefully provide some context and some understanding for them to, uh, well, quite frankly, to find the place that, that they want to live, either to improve the place they live in now or move somewhere else. Right, right. So you'd mentioned that you really hadn't thought
1: about urban planning, you know, before. What was what was that aha moment
0: that got you thinking about urban planning? (laughs) There's a story there. (laughs) And I'm actually working on a video about this very thing. So it it happened at a very specific time. And it's funny because I clearly remember the moment it happened. So I was on a business trip. I was on one of my many round the world trips, like literally on one of those round the world tickets where, you know, you have to travel just east or just west and, and you can get it on a single fare. So I was doing a business trip that was hitting up, I don't know what it was, six or seven cities around the world. And I was uh, doing it with, uh, with this one lega uh, in the US I was doing it with a couple of coworkers, And so I was in Houston. I was in the suburbs of Houston. Uh, I'm not a fan of Houston. But anyway, um, I was in the suburbs of Houston and we had one rental car between the three of us and the uh, we had no meetings for the rest of the day. And the guys took off to go to something. I don't remember what it was, but they took the car. Anyway, so I was at the hotel in the suburbs of Houston, and I needed a new suitcase. And there happened to be a a luggage store that was about 800 meters from the hotel. And I thought, you know, that's great. Luggage store, it actually sells the brand of luggage that I was looking for. And I thought, fantastic. I will walk to the luggage store. I will buy a suitcase. That, That was my plan. And oh my God, I almost died. Like, it was just, it was horrible. Like. I left the hotel. There's no sidewalk. I walked through the parking lot to the main road, which I now know is a strode, you know. So this is a five lane high speed arterial. Uh, And um, there was a sidewalk for part of it, uh, but it was uncomfortable to walk there. Uh, And but, you know, there was a sidewalk. So uh, so I'm walking along. I'm from London, Ontario, so I know what it's like to walk along crappy strodes. So, uh, but then I get to this, this railway overpass. So the, the railway was sort of sunken down and uh, an old railway. I don't think it was in use anymore. And the sidewalk just ended. And the sidewalk really just became a curb that was only about 10 centimeters wide. And so I'm shimmying along this little <laughs> piece of concrete holding onto the guardrail as these cars are going by at 80 to hundred kilometers an hour. <laughs> and at that moment, At that moment, I clearly remember myself thinking, if I live through this, I want to live in wherever the opposite of this place is. And I now live in Amsterdam. There you go. So anyway, I eventually made it to the other side. There was no sidewalk on the other side. I walked through parking lots. I made it to the luggage store. I bought my luggage and I took a taxi back 800 meters. And that's stupid. Like no place should ever be designed like that that you can't walk 800 meters without risking your life. I mean, that's just, it's, it's unbelievably stupid. And yet these places exist all over the US and Canada. And that was the moment where I was determined to like figure out like, why would a place be designed such as this? Such that you've got five lanes of traffic, you've got businesses everywhere, you've got a shopping mall nearby, you've got hotels and you've got no way to walk. Uh, so that's actually where it all started in Houston. Thanks, Houston. I love it. I mean, I, I love it because. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a specific moment. It's a specific moment,
1: you know, and, and mine is not far off. I mean, it, I was just saying this earlier today on the uh, Bottom-Up Revolution podcast with Rachel. Oh, yeah. And, and she was asking, well, what's your origin story? How did how did Active Towns come about? And, and I said, well, you know, it's a, it was about halfway through my career. I mean, I've been doing this for about 30 years. And about 15 years in, you know, I made a move. I moved from Boulder, Colorado to Honolulu, Hawaii. Oh, yeah. And so I'm moving from one slice of paradise to another slice of paradise. But then I get there. And it was so devastating. I couldn't ride my bike. Right. I mean, it was just such a hostile environment. They literally paved over paradise. They took, you know, a beautiful island, you know, Shangri-La and turned it into a, an auto hellscape. I literally sold my bike, withdrew from Ironman Canada, which was a triathlon I was supposed to be doing up in, in Penticton that year. And said, I, I, I can't do this. I I,
0: hmm.
1: I cannot risk my life out on these streets. Yeah. I'm going to go surfing. I'm going to spend my time in the ocean. And so that really, you know, was a shift for me uh, in the health promotion world, which is what my background is, is, is in public health, of really examining our communities, our built environment. And that t- clued me into uh, urbanism and the Congress for New Urbanism. And then very soon after that, I met uh, I met uh, Chuck and Strong Towns and uh, the rest is history. I mean, in 2011, I founded my nonprofit. And then in 2012, uh, when we sort of honed in on what we wanted to say about creating a culture of activity is when I uh, I coined the term, you know, uh, active towns, and I reached out to Chuck too, and I said, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, launching a new initiative as part of uh, my nonprofit, which the technical name is Advocates for Healthy Communities. And uh, I said, I'm thinking of calling it active towns, mainly because the URL is available. <laughs> <laughs> active cities, that wasn't available. Active communities, that wasn't available. Active towns was available. And he's like, yeah, I'd be honored. You should do, totally do that. And uh, one of the things that that he and I banter around about is that a strong town is inherently an active yeah, town. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so, you, you know, know. Because of this whole reason, this connection to mobility, active mobility.
0: Yes. You know, I mentioned to you before we got on as soon as my camera came up that I've got a sunburn today um, because I've been out and I forgot to put sunscreen on. But, you know, I I was out doing the things that I was doing today. Um, Nothing special. It was all the stuff I had to do. And I I just looked here that I've done 25 kilometers of cycling today. Right. That's just the cycling. It's not it's not the walking that I've done. And and that was not because I'm training for an Ironman. And it was not because I'm going out for exercise. That was because I needed to run errands and I had meetings in a specific place in the city and I needed to take my kid to his activities. I mean, that's it. And 25 kilometers of cycling. Uh, now it's on an e-bike, so it's not like I you know, deserve some great applause or something for my exercise, but that's not the point. It's not about the exercise. It's about I'm staying active just by living my life. And if I lived in the suburbs of Houston, uh, that would simply not be possible. Right, right. Well, it's what we call natural
1: activity. Yeah.
0: It's what I call the gym of life.
1: Your environment, your community just helps embrace you and gives you a hug that says, "Come on out. Let's, you know, go for a walk, go for a bike." Yeah. It's easy.
0: I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you know this, but you you don't actually need a lot of physical activity to get the health benefits of physical activity. Like you don't need to be pumping iron at the gym and and doing hard cardio all the time. Those things are great if you've got specific goals in mind for your health, but in terms of just staying healthy, like you just need to move. Like it's, it, you just you need to move besides just from the the seat of your car to the seat at your desk at work. You know, it's it's not even that difficult if the built environment is correct. And I mean, yeah. and it obviously it is here. I, I mean, it's it's funny because I, I joke to people that I, I made a video about um, grocery shopping very early on in the channel, um, that you know, it, it, we have you know half dozen grocery stores within 500 meters of where we live, and and that's the case for m- most city residents, and and actually almost everyone in the country uh, has a grocery store, a two at least two grocery stores within 500 meters of where they live through the whole country. But anyway, in that video, uh, I talked about how I would grocery shop by bicycle, and uh, because one of the things that we got asked. When we lived car-free for a while in Toronto, the very first question anyone would ask us was, but how do you buy groceries? And we used to actually have a a, uh, car-free living blog called But How Do You Buy Groceries Uh, for that reason. Which is, I mean, it's comical that people think they literally can't think about how they would feed themselves without two tons of steel.
1: But I'll interject. You and I are sort of, you know, inside baseball, and we're like, yeah, well, of course you can do this. And you had the international experience of yeah. being exposed to that. They have literally never been exposed to the fact that it, it can be done. I mean, it really, yeah. I'm glad that you made that video. And I've, yeah. I've, uh, my, my, my good friend Ryan Van Duser, who I mentioned to you before we started recording, that's one of his most popular videos that he, you know, produced for his YouTube channel was how he does grocery shopping in right. Boulder, Colorado.
0: Yeah. It's just, it's just mind boggling to me, but you know, it's not what, what's crazy about it though, is that, I mean, this was me until about 20 years ago when when I started my channel, my target audience was me 20 years ago. Yeah. And even referenced that in the first video that it was like, I'm targeting the person who is me. I grew up in this sprawling suburb. I was trapped as a child. Uh, until I was 16 and could get my driver's license and finally like not be relying on my parents. I could not wait to get my own car. Uh, I could not even fathom the idea of living without a car like living without a car was being robbed of everything. And I mean that now I look back and I think that's insane. Like where, where I live and where I have lived in many cities, living with a car would be a liability. Like I'd have to worry about it and to park it and like i I don't even want it like and and actually the latest video i just made was about car sharing and and how not only has it been cheaper for us but it's also just less hassle like even if it wasn't cheaper we would still do it because i don't want to worry about the car like i don't want to worry about it getting broken into or getting scratched or like having to pay for the insurance or any of that stuff so it yeah it's just it's fascinating but i mean I, this is the thing I can understand because I used to be one of these people like I used to think exactly the same way Because you grow up in an environment. You grow up in the environment that you grow up in Just like the Dutch people who were amazed by my channel and you have no idea that it could be different And that it can be different um, And actually just one more thing Um, What I mentioned in that grocery store video and the reason I was mentioning is that uh, I had mentioned that I I grocery store uh, grocery shop by bicycle, which just blows people's minds. Like how do you grocery shop by bicycle? You know, you can't you can't fit anything on a bicycle, which is obviously nonsense too. But but what's funny is I now tell people, yeah, I I don't grocery shop by bicycle anymore, and they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You can't grocery shop by bicycle. Said, no, because I walk to get my groceries. Like I only grocery. Like I only grocery shop by bicycle if I need to get a lot of stuff. Otherwise, I'm walking by the grocery store anyway. So it literally takes me only a couple of minutes to step inside, grab what I need for dinner, and and step back out. Like it's not even a trip. It's it's literally just a minor detour. Right.
1: It's it's like if I have shop by bicycle to go grocery shopping, I'm going to have
0: to pass up a half yeah. dozen or more uh, grocery <laughs> exactly. stores
1: till I can get a decent ride in. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I mean, I I do grocery shop by bicycle sometimes, but it's the one where it's like I'll take the the buckfeeds cargo bike and I'll and I'll go to the bigger grocery store and I'll and I'll buy you know all of the the, the canned goods and all that stuff that'll last a while. But I, most of the time, I don't I didn't want to shop by yeah by bicycle because then you have to go and park it and lock it up, and I don't want to bother with all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's that's great stuff. So you referenced it a couple of different times. The first video. So I want to make sure that we, yeah. uh, for the listeners, get that uh, the title of that video right. Is is that the uh, what makes a great city video?
0: Yes, I think it's something like that. Uh, if you go to um, YouTube.com/notjustbikes, or actually notjustbikes.com, just bounces you there. Right. Uh, I think it auto plays as soon as you. Hit the channel. Oh, okay. But that was the very first. That was the very first video that I uploaded, and I mean that explains everything. Yeah, it says it, that's, this is the video I wish I could have seen 20 years ago because <laughs> it would have saved me a lot of time. Exactly, <laughs> and, and I've
1: got it up on my screen here so I can actually see that the uh, the, the grocery store uh, video, which is a, a couple more over, is uh, is h- at
0: 603,000 views. <laughs> I know, right? Is that the so most viewed the video? Is, no the most viewed is actually my dutch bicycles um video which is also not expected so when i make videos i have like what i think are like headline videos so like when i made the growth ponzi scheme i put a lot of effort into it i put like graphs in it and all this animated stuff and i was like no this is this is the big video Right, right right and i spend a lot of time on it and i know i'm going to get a bunch of hate mail from suburbanites on it and all that so you know i that's that's a big deal yeah and then i make these kind of in between videos To introduce sort of more what I consider more minor subjects, but I think are important to sort of flesh things out. Yeah. But also for my own sanity so that I can do something a little more lighthearted, you know, maybe get a little less hate mail from the suburbanites. And, uh, and the Dutch Bicycles was supposed to be an in-between video, just about, hey, this is what Dutch Bicycles are like. And, no, oh, that's the most popular video on the channel. So one thing I've learned from this whole experience is I have no idea what people are going to be interested in. <laughs> like, absolutely <laughs> no idea. Like, I cannot predict how a video is going to do it any, at all. Yeah, like, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I, so basically, I, I mean, I chat with my Patreons sometimes, but for the most part, I just say, like, this is the stuff I got in my head right now. This is what I'm thinking about. I'm going to make a video about it. See what happens. Yeah. Because.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and what's, what's funny is, is, and I know this because I read uh, some of your comments about this is that uh, sometimes, you know, the, the algorithms have a a big impact on what gets viewed too. So you had mentioned that uh, the algorithm, the YouTube algorithm, you know, Sort of boosted your 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 uh, garbage video, yeah. And so suddenly, trash pickup video was like one of the most popular. In fact, it's number three on your list right now.
0: Is it? Yeah. I you know what? While we're sitting here, I should very quickly pull this. out. I should I should know these things. So yeah. So um Dutch bikes are better. Seven hundred seventy three thousand views. I mean, that's just mind boggling. It, it. I I can see the stats on the on the path that it's on. It's going to hit a million in in probably about two or three months. Yeah. Which. For me to think that I have made a piece of content that has been viewed a million times is just mind boggling. Right. Absolutely mind boggling. But, uh, but you know, the thing is there, there, I mean, there's an appetite for this stuff. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised because after my, you know, my world travel experience, my fateful walk in Houston, I got interested in this stuff. And then when I, when I did, I, I almost I couldn't unsee it every every place I went to I was spotting all of these different elements and these different things and it it was it was fascinating but it's also uh, I I will warn anybody that starts watching this content of mine or anybody else's once you see it you can't unsee it like unfortunately once you learn about like Strodes and why they're bad from strong towns or from my videos about strong towns you're going to go out to the strode near you and you're going to be like this is garbage yeah. like I used to just drive on this and you know, tune out and listen to the radio or something. And now I'm going to look at this and think, this is horrible. We need to do something about this. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so true. It's so true. I I think one of my first exposures to your videos was probably your number two video, which was why cars rarely crash into buildings in the, in the Netherlands. Yeah. (laughs) And, 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 and just, just so we can make this about me, uh, <laughs> I, I will, I will, uh, uh, remind you that probably one of my first, uh, interactions with you was when I, uh, when I actually published and posted the, uh, interview with, uh, Aaron Riediger, uh, about Dutch bikes. It was the plain bicycle, uh, you, right. know, you know, culture bomb. Right. And, and so I, when I built the landing page for that episode, I made sure that, uh, your Upright Dutch Bicycles uh, video was embedded on the Active Towns uh, you know, podcast episode for Aaron's episode. So I, I'm sure that it was her immense popularity and, and the people <laughs> going to the website that helped propel Absolutely. that video to the top. Yeah. Well,
0: that totally explains it. See, yeah. I told you I didn't think it was going to be a big video and it was. And obviously I know now it's because it was linked by Active Towns.
1: Well, what's neat is, is you're producing content that I keep referencing back to, because I've already, uh, twice now, uh, referenced the, the new Strode video, uh, for, for strong towns. And, and that's, I mean, that's, I guess the whole point, and you had mentioned it earlier is it's not just a guy or two guys or a bunch of talking heads, just talking about stuff as we are right now on this podcast. (laughs) If you're listening to just the audio vision version of this podcast, Go to the landing page. We'll have some video there. There'll be some photos there. We may even produce this as a video version of it because we've been talking about a bunch of cool stuff and then you don't have to just have these two talking heads. There's visuals there. But a lot of people do take this information in audio wise. Maybe they're doing something else. Maybe they're going for a walk. Maybe they're working in the yard. Uh, And so, you know, that, that opportunity to do that, but you're so absolutely right. The visuals are so powerful and it's great to have another content producer out there that's like producing something that's like spot on. Oh, somebody referenced Strode. I'm going to make sure that that video is embedded into this content so that people can reference and, and, and be able to understand Uh, because a lot of this is wonky. So getting back to the, the point that that was your aha moment, you were in Houston, just down the road from me here in Austin, Texas, and uh, it hit you upside the head. Like, literally, this was a bad, bad environment.
0: Thankfully, nothing hit me upside the head, literally, literally. That, uh, that day, because that would have been a big problem. But it could have. It
1: could have. It could have. So, what was that next step? I mean, did you just start immersing yourself in urbanism? Uh, What was that? What was that sort of,
0: you know, process like? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the time in my life when I was on an airplane all the time. Like I I traveled more than almost anybody that I've ever met. (laughs) I had I had gold status on two different airlines at the same time. So I had a lot of time to read. Right. And that's what I did. And I, I would read, um, I would read, uh, mostly books, but occasionally I would read blogs too. You know, I might, uh, you know, download some stuff to read on the plane or something like that. What was the most impactful
1: book that you can think back to that era and said, this, you know, really makes sense now. And then that led to another thing and another.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, one of them that maybe not so much about urban planning, but one that's actually very important and one that I've been thinking I really have to make a video about is, um, is there's a book called High and Mighty that was written by a Detroit, um, auto journalist about, um, the history of the SUV. And, uh, man that screwed up. Like it's, it was literally only created to get around, um, fuel efficiency standards and it was heavily promoted for that reason. And, and it's just, it's such a sad story to be honest, because SUVs have completely screwed us in so many ways from them being way more dangerous, to people driving, certainly to pedestrians, the the uh, fuel efficiency implications. I mean, just uh, I mean they've just been horrible all around. So that was one of those ones that I read, and I was just like, oh damn, this is not good. And SUVs have only become significantly worse since then, because I think that book was written like 15 years ago or something like that. Right, right.
1: Can you Um, recall from that book or the quote unquote light trucks like the, the Ford F-150, is that also considered in that category?
0: Yeah, it was all in light trucks. So basically the very brief history, keeping in mind that I haven't read this book in like 10 years. Um, the very brief history was that, uh, uh, there were these, uh, fuel efficiency standards that were put in the CAFE standards, the combined average fuel efficiency standards, CAFA. And, um, and they were supposed to be basically a a manufacturer had to have an average fuel efficiency for the whole range. Um, and originally, I actually remember this from when I lived in California in the late 90s and EVs were a big thing. And EVs are another one that just drive me nuts because I was living in California when the EV1 was there and I saw them all over the place and they were chargers at Fry's Electronics and I figured we'd all be driving EVs in 10 years. And guess what? We weren't. But anyway, uh, so you had to have this combined average fuel efficiency across your whole product line. And that was the important part is that you couldn't just, you know, have a couple of fuel efficient vehicles and then mostly sell a bunch of fuel inefficient vehicles. But the one thing that happened uh, after like heavy lobbying by the auto industry was for them to exempt light trucks. And that was it was all sold under... Oh, boo-hoo, you know, all these, you know, these, these farmers and and these, these, these trades workers with their light trucks are going to have to pay more and they're all going to go out of business, boo-hoo. And, um, and so they exempted light trucks from the average fuel efficiency standard. So what happens? The manufacturers just said, well, let's cram as many sales as possible into this exempted category, just whatever we can do, cram it into the exempted category. And that's where the SUV came from. I mean, there were SUVs before this, like the Jeep. Uh, Grand Cherokee. But, you know, they were sold to the people that actually needed them, which is like a tenth of a tenth of a tenth of one percent of the population. Um, but after that, they had every motivation possible to to promote the hell out of light trucks. And, and that's where it all came from. And the implications of that have just been just awful.
1: Well, we're, we're definitely seeing that, you know, in the fatality rates here in in North America, where we see The fatality rates, uh, you know, in for the occupants of the motor vehicles have been relatively flat, if not decreasing. And yet uh, we're starting to see the uptick in the fatality rates of of pedestrians
0: and and people outside of motor vehicles. Yeah, A massive uptick since uh, since about 2009. Um, And and it's not entirely due to SUVs, but it's it's a it's a big part of
1: it. Speed is a big part of it, too. And
0: speed. Yeah. but you know the thing is though it's when it comes to a crash it's not about speed it's about momentum which is speed times times the mass and it's the, the mass the yeah. higher mass vehicles the higher weight vehicles are uh, contribute to that so even at lower speeds SUVs are more I mean it's just this is a whole other issue but boy yeah that was one book that I was just like oh damn this is just <laughs> I had no idea absolutely no idea did you ever read uh, the book Traffic by Tom Vanderbilt. No, I actually never got around to reading it. It's one of those ones that I got on the e- ebook reader and just never got around to it. Yeah, so yeah. I really should. Yeah, it's um, a but good why it, why in particular do you say that? Oh, it's it's just a no it was one of the earlier books that, you know, that that I sort of dove
1: into and it and it sort of, you know, started to be just another one of those uh, self-reinforcing things It's like, "Oh, okay, this is starting to make more sense." I think that's when I first realized that you know, some of the psychology behind, uh, driver behavior and things of that nature. So yeah, if you, if you have it, uh, and it's just kind of sitting there, uh, I think it's worth it. It's, it's a little dated now. It's, it's, you know, it was probably a decade ago, but it's still a great book. So yeah, good stuff. And speaking of books now, earlier you had mentioned that, you know, low levels of activity, are sufficient for health, uh, implications and, and health improvement. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Peter Walker's new book, Miracle Pill, he talks a lot about this and, uh, it's, it's that concept that, Hey, uh, humans are not meant to be sedentary and when we are bad things happen. And so even just that, like you said, just going out, doing your normal business, going about your day and, you know, Wow, two hundred or you know, twenty five kilometers worth of pounds, of, uh, yeah. <laughs> of movement on the bike, and yeah. it, it's it's that you know natural unplanned activity that really helps you know reinforce healthy active lifestyles, and you're absolutely right. You mentioned you know it, it's not that exercise is unhealthy. Yes, and and Peter talks about this in his book. It's like If you are able to, to get a little bit more exertion in, you will benefit from it yeah, for sure, but you don't have to. And so you don't, that barrier, that friction doesn't have to be there. It could be just, you know, taking advantage of our built environment and, uh, you're, you're in the middle of it. So we talked a little bit about the most popular videos that, uh, have, have really trended. What's your most popular video?
0: Of mine or anybody's? Yeah, um, no, you're of yours. Of you know, mine,
1: either, either, you know, either the one that you, you know, just really were most satisfied with personally, or you're, you're just like, and who knows? Maybe it's not the most popular.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know, it's a good It's a good question. There's there's a lot of them that I like. I mean, I wouldn't have made them if I don't like them because it's not like I'm on any kind of schedule. Well, I try to stick myself to a schedule, otherwise I'll never get anything done, but it's not like anyone's holding me to a schedule, I should say, even my Patreons, if I slip, they're like, yeah, it's fine, dude, whatever, take your time. So, <laughs> so I've never made anything that I don't like. One of the ones, that, so maybe I'll give an example of one that's not as popular as I wish it were, uh, which is um, I made a video, not too fancy. It's just called, uh, do your buses get stuck in traffic? Mm-hmm. And, um, that's one that I think the message of it is very important. It's not a very popular video because a lot of people don't really care about buses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are lots of train people. I'm a train person. I love my trains. I love trams. Right. Um, but, uh, there's not a lot of people who love buses. Um, so maybe it just doesn't capture people's attention, but do your buses get stuck in traffic is ultimately about, um, well, ultimately about an urban planning concept called the Downs-Thompson paradox, but which is that um, b- basically, th- this is not the way it's structured, but it basically says people will take the fastest and most efficient or most convenient in some cases way to get to where they're going. That's it. It's very simple. And I think it's really lost on people uh, when they're looking at designing cities. In North American cities, this this traffic engineering, I mean, this is, you know, going back to any Strongtown stuff, this traffic engineering, just fixation on moving as many vehicles as possible is just so incredibly brain dead, because you are not moving vehicles, there's nothing to do with vehicles, you're moving people, The it is irrelevant as to how they get there. Um, and as soon as you start focusing on moving people instead of moving cars, you change the the way the math works out. And so Do your buses get stuck in traffic? The whole idea is a city where buses get stuck in traffic sucks. Like this is literally one of these things that I have used, you know, when I started learning about urban planning and I was traveling around the world. This is one of these things I noticed that it's like if your buses get stuck in traffic, your city sucks because this is a this is a a sort of metric for what your city finds is important. Like, does your city care about moving people? Um, Does your city care about public transport users or are they only concerned about the people who are in cars? Because if you're on a bus and it gets stuck in traffic, nobody's going to take the bus. Like if you have money for a car, you will get a car. Like there's literally no reason why you wouldn't do such a thing. And I remember this from growing up in London, Ontario. Before I could drive, I remember waiting for the bus that was supposed to come every 45 minutes and it just didn't. Right. It just didn't show up. And when it did show up eventually, you know, another 45 minutes later, it would just get stuck in traffic with the cars. So, you know, it it was awful. And as soon as, and public transit that gets stuck in traffic will not actually be effective. It's not useful. It's basically, you're basically saying public transit is going to be for the poor and the desperate who can't drive or can't afford to drive. And that's it. The whole point of public transit from my point of view is that it should be, An efficient way to get around Uh, public transit moves even the simple bus moves crazy amounts of people huge amounts of people and very efficiently too and so when you give buses their own lane when you give them signal priority um, it becomes a desirable way to travel because the truth is there's lots of there's lots of car people and train people and bike people but most people don't care most people really don't care Like, if people say they like their cars, most people don't even like their cars because they like cars. They like their car because their car gets them to where they want to go. Just the way I did when I was 16 and I got a car, boy, I like cars. Because the car finally gave me the freedom to get to where I was going. But it did that because of the way my city was designed. If the bus was coming every 5 to 10 minutes, and the bus had its own lane and would speed by the cars, I wouldn't like cars. I wouldn't even care. And that's the, the situation that you see here in the Netherlands is that There are so many uh, priority uh, bus lanes, priority tram lanes, and that's the only way public transit can really work because as soon as then it becomes a faster and efficient way, it doesn't have to be for everyone. It just has to be for a segment of the population. As soon as the bus or the tram becomes faster, people are gonna take it. The people who don't care about how they get around, the people who just say, look, I just wanna get to where I'm going and this will get me there five minutes faster. So I'm gonna do it. And as soon as that happens, Everything else around it just becomes better because then yeah. and, and this is something that um that I'm working on in a video as well. Like it's great to drive in the Netherlands. Like it's fantastic to drive in the Netherlands. And right. I've put out videos about traffic calming and I get all this people got, oh, I would hate that. It would be the worst place in the world. Give me my my six-lane roads in Florida. And and it was funny, there's actually a video that I saw, and I wish I could remember who who did it, but uh there was a video uh, on YouTube, just random vlogger guy, not related to urban planning at all, guy who moved from Florida to the Netherlands, loves driving. He, he makes videos about cars. And he made a video about how much he loves driving in the Netherlands compared to Florida. And it's because...
1: Well, and it's, and it's, not, just the, it's not just that guy. I mean, they are actually are rated as the world's most satisfied drivers.
0: Yeah. They are. Yeah. And the Waze data backs this up too. like the Netherlands is the best country in the world to drive. And the reason for that is because the only people who drive are the people who want to drive or the people who need to drive. And that's it. Anybody that doesn't want to drive or doesn't need to drive isn't driving. Right. And when you get rid of all the people who don't want to be in their cars, <laughs> things are better for everybody. Yeah. And you know, if, if I, I don't personally enjoy driving very much, I do it. But I, I would rather sit and read a book or something, right? I don't like having to pay attention and being worried that I'm gonna kill somebody or myself or both. So I would gladly take a tram, even if it's a little bit longer, to be honest. But that's not an option. And it, like if I'm in Toronto, for instance, and I hop on the streetcar. Well, it, it's just gonna get stuck in traffic with cars. So I, I have a choice. And, and then it's, of course, gonna stop and let people off and everything else. So I have a choice. Do, do I wanna sit on the tram for 40 minutes or do I wanna drive for 15 minutes or 20 minutes? And I think even I, as a tram lover, I'm gonna look at this and say, no, I'm gonna drive, are you crazy? But the only reason for that is because the tram, the streetcars, are stuck in traffic. Yeah, yeah. And getting back to the the bus video, which, by the
1: way, we're going to propel the this bus video into a much more powerful. So this <laughs> oh, is the you challenge. Watch out,
0: Dutch bicycles.
1: <laughs> this is the this is the challenge, you you Active Towns podcast listeners. And I know there's a few of you out there that are are, are passionate uh, transit folks. Uh, yeah, let's let's uh, let's boost this uh, bus video up there. But one of the biggest challenges that we have is that we don't even treat bus riders with dignity.
0: No, I know. It's disgraceful actually in the, in the US. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, the stick in the mud, you know, bus stop and 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 this gets back to part of the success from an active mobility perspective is that the Dutch are continually fine-tuning and tweaking and working on the the quality of the bicycle network. It's never complete. It's never perfect. Yeah. And so they're always tinkering with it and saying, how can we make this a more dignified experience? How can we make this more comfortable for everyone? And And, and that's part of the reason why the system is working as well as it is and continues to get better and better. And in fact, uh, Mark with Bicycle Dutch uh, just you know posted a wonderful 10-year comparison uh, right, of, on Utrecht. of Utrecht. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's and um, it was fantastic because that is very much a part of that spirit of saying, you know, we have to treat people with with dignity if we expect that they're not going to jump in a car.
0: Yeah, actually, this is something I was talking about when I was on the radio with NPO Radio Ane here um, that uh, all of this is very fragile, to be honest, because um, and, and they've seen it in certain parts of the Netherlands where they've they've slipped up a bit if you've got bicycle paths but then there's a section where actually you know you've gone and you've prioritized cars and now it's really busy and now it's hard to cross somebody's gonna stop cycling yeah somebody somewhere is gonna stop cycling you know and, and it'll probably be on the periphery it'll all either be like a kid or a parent with young children or it'll be a senior but somebody is going to stop cycling because of that right they're gonna they're gonna hit this rough patch they're gonna feel uncomfortable they're gonna be a bit too close to a car or something and you know, your 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 mother or your grandmother is gonna be like, you know, I no, I, I can't do this anymore.
1: Well and, and Jason, I'll I'll jump in and say it, and and I'll extend that out to not just about bikes, of saying if the experience that somebody has of walking down that street uh, is, is uncomfortable and unsafe, you know, they might be less likely to, to, to take transit. They might be less likely to, yeah. you know, jump on the train. They, they may be incentivized to, you know, say, Hey, you know what, that car that sits in the garage or parked most of the time, because they actually do have quite high, you know, car ownership levels. It's like the Dutch do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They, they might just go ahead and say, you know, we're going to drive because it, that mm-hmm. experience wasn't there. So you're in Amsterdam and Amsterdam does have a challenge. They have a challenge of the density that they are and the overwhelming number of bikes that, you know, proliferate in the public spaces. And so, Mm -hmm. you know... Trying to, you know, trying to make sure that they, you know, deal with the amount of bikes that are on the streets, especially in the most uh, congested areas, is there. So again, another example that I give of, you know, they're they're tinkering with that. They're trying to think through ways of of dealing with. Uh, hey, we've got a problem. It's a good problem. <laughs> too many bikes (laughs) yeah
0: there are certainly worse problems yeah
1: there's worse problems to have but the point being is that when it comes to that public realm it's got to be safe and comfortable and convenient for people and it's not safe or comfortable and convenient if you're you know maybe you're you're you know somebody who's in a wheelchair or somebody who is you know inconvenienced by you know a whole bunch of bikes that are you know blocking your door to get into your your apartment Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you really want to leave the listeners with?
0: Well, I mean, there is, I guess there's one thing, uh, maybe it's too depressing to end on, but that's all right. I have another one so you can do the depressing. (laughs) All right. Okay. So So I'll do the depressing one and then you let's do something a little happier at the end. So one of the things that I get a lot um, now that the channel has become quite successful is I get a lot of people saying to me, Oh my God, you've opened my eyes to all this. How can I make it better where I live? And that is the hardest question for me to answer, to be honest. And I I usually send people to Strong Towns for what it's worth, because I think the work that Strong Towns is doing is the probably the most likely to lead to success, going back to traditional mixed use development and really focusing on downtown areas that are productive and things like that. But that's a hard question for me to answer because the, the truth of the matter is I left. Right? Like I looked at the situation where I was from and I said, this is, this is not going to work. Like there's no solution to this in my lifetime. So I literally like packed up my whole family and left. So uh, it's always hard for me to answer that question. And I know I get it all the time. I get it literally every day, some, multiple times a day. Um, if I, if I read the YouTube comments, which I usually don't after a few days because it becomes like just brain dead conspiracy theories after a while. But I have a hard time answering that question. So to anybody listening who wants me to answer that question, I go to strong towns because I can't answer it. And I honestly, I would be a hypocrite if I was trying to give you um, solutions to that because I couldn't find solutions. I'm, I'm not an advocate. Like uh, my wife's the advocate. I'm the guy that like looks at all the data and thinks, okay, well, if we present all the data, everybody, they'll all agree and we'll all jump on board. No, they're not going to do that. <laughs> so anyway, that's the biggest challenge I have right now is that I feel like the channel is, is becoming, well, certainly as I introduce urban planning concepts, it's just becoming too negative. And, uh, and it's just negativity after negativity after negativity because unfortunately, it was all of that negativity that drove me to say, I can't do this anymore, I need to leave. So that's that's the truth of my experience. So eventually I'm going to have to to turn the, the channel into talking about sort of what's working here at least and talking about things in the Netherlands, although I don't know how much interest there's going to be on that. I mean, certainly that's something that uh, Bicycle Dutch does very well. Uh, as you said, about the 10 years of Utrecht, it's a great video yeah. about the, the things that they've done here. But anyway, that's the one thing I... I want to say I, I can't answer that question except go check out Strong Towns. And, and I mean, Active Towns podcast, too, to be honest. I mean, the stuff that you guys talk about here, you you talk about what some people are doing in the U.S. and some grassroots movements um, that are going on. And and I think that's ultimately the solution. It's going to be long and it's going to be difficult. But that's if you're if you're in, if you've got your roots, dug, then that's that's the path to go.
1: Yeah, and I would actually push back on you a little bit and challenge you a little bit here in the sense that I think that what you are producing, the content that you are producing, is partly those solutions because you're talking about these things and you're talking about them in a nice compare and contrast way. And so Mm -hmm. it may not be
0: prescriptive. It may not be, you know. Yeah, well, it's certainly not prescriptive. No, no. No, But it is. Okay. But it does open people's eyes to that. Here's what the problem is, so at yep. least you can focus your attention on it. If yeah. you're the type of person who is more of an activist than I am, yeah,
1: yeah. absolutely. And and you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. You know, strong towns, the strong towns movement is a wonderful uh, resource to go to, and it'll go deep into a whole bunch of 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 other subjects. Uh, you know, about the you know the problems as they exist. You know, especially from a North American context of you know the what happened post-world war ii and the ponzi scheme Mm -hmm. of how you know really the Mm -hmm. suburban development you know kind of took over uh and 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 you're absolutely right mark with bicycle dutch great resource and many many years worth of content another great resource is street films clarence Eckerson jr uh he's up to no almost a thousand films at this point on on his uh channel that's impressive and has wonderful content and interviews about things that are happening, and ideas of you know how things can happen. At the the bottom line, though, is that and, and and this is this is your story. Is you have to care, you have to get engaged, and you have to do something. For you, that something was moving to the Netherlands. Piss off moving and move to the yeah. Netherlands. Step one. <laughs> step two talking about it and talking about it visually and creating a YouTube channel Um, and, and now becoming, I'm anointing you an activity ambassador and a YouTube star.
0: (laughs) There you go. Thank you so much. You know, I get recognized on the street. I don't even know how that's possible. I don't even show my face that often in my videos and I get recognized on the street.
1: Yeah. Hey, I, you deserve it. You're doing great work. (laughs) Keep it up. And once again, how can people find you?
0: Um, well, the best place is YouTube. Obviously, um, you can go search on YouTube for noncious bikes. I mean, if you search any platform for noncious bikes, I'm going to pop up. There's a subreddit. Um, there's a, uh, there's the, the, the Twitter. Um, there's it's everything. NotJustBikes.com bumps you to the YouTube channel. But anyway, Not Just bikes seems to be everywhere these days. I can't get away from it. And you mentioned And you
1: mentioned earlier that you have a Patreon, so...
0: Yeah, so uh, I have a Patreon as well if you'd like to support the channel. Uh, it's Patreon.com slash Bikes. And I guess there is the one other channel, the um, NJB Live, which I have a second YouTube channel called NJB Live, where I live stream bicycle rides. So for people that really want to see the nitty-gritty of... Uh, or maybe get a bit jealous of of how things work here. I do bicycle rides in and around Amsterdam and hopefully in other cities too after the, the travel restrictions let up where I ride on a bike and I have the camera pointed to, to where I'm going and uh, interact with the chat and talk to people about what we're seeing. And, and I think um, to certain people that they love that kind of content and uh, because what I find interesting about riding around on a bicycle and live streaming it is that uh, I can go anywhere. I can go literally anywhere and it's always going to be safe. right? And that's something that just cannot be appreciated enough because I think some people might even look at Amsterdam and think, oh yeah, they have these bike lanes here and this is the touristy area of there. But like, surely when you go out to the industrial park, it's just gonna be a bunch of trucks. And no, I mean, I've done bike rides out to industrial parks and I'm like, no, look at this. It's a fantastic featspad. And I take a different, more direct route to get here than the cars and trucks do. And when I get here, it's completely safe and there's traffic calming even in an industrial park with a bunch of warehouses. So I think if you're interested in seeing some of that, you can check out NJB Live and see what it looks like all over. Because I really try to cover the city, every last little piece of it to show you uh, to what it looks like.
1: And uh, for that particular platform, uh, when you are out there doing it, are you interacting with folks live?
0: Yes, I am absolutely. So I read the chat um, when possible. I usually ride a bit slower and have it big on the on the on the the handlebars there, so I can read it. And and yeah, it's actually it's a it's a good time because people can ask some questions to me or about the city or what they're seeing, um, anything like that. And, uh, and and it actually becomes quite interesting. So I, I get between but 100 to 150 people at a time on there, and uh, and, it, and it's pretty good. So come check that out if that's something that would interest you.
1: There you go, folks. So Not Just Bikes out on YouTube and also NJB Live. Check Jason out. That's great. Hey, Jason, thank you so very much for joining me on the Active Towns
0: podcast. Thanks so much. It was great.
1: Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 82 of the Active Towns podcast. I sure hope you enjoyed this fun chat with Jason Slaughter as much as I did. It's really amazing how the Not Just Bikes channel has taken off And I choose to believe that this is an indication that people around the globe are ready for change, ready for more people-oriented places. And why not? If not now, then when? I encourage you all to explore Jason's work, both his Not Just Bikes and his NJB Live channels. I've included the relevant links in the show notes, as well as out on the landing page for this episode at activetowns.org. Also, the landing page will feature many of the videos we discussed embedded for your easy viewing pleasure. Okay, here's my final fundraising plug, but at least for this episode, (laughs) seriously though, if you've enjoyed this episode and appreciate my efforts to profile the inspiring advances happening around the globe to promote active living and active mobility, please help me out by making a tax-deductible contribution to active towns. Each and every donation is truly appreciated and really does make a huge difference in allowing me the ability to continue producing this content and growing the culture of activity movement. I've made doing so super easy. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to ActiveTowns.org and navigate to the donate page. Thank you all so very much for your support and for tuning in. That's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. (laughs) All right. <laughs>